Have you been enjoying the Casting Through Ancient Greece podcast? If so, and if you've been wondering how you can support the series, you can head to www.castingthroughancientgreece.com and click on the Support the Series button. Here you will find many ways to help the series grow. This could be signing up as a Casting Through Ancient Greece Patreon member, where you will gain access to early release and ad-free episodes. Also, every month, an exclusive Patreon episode and series update is released just for members to show my appreciation for choosing to support the show. I also have an option for those wishing to provide one-off donations through Buy Me A Coffee, with a quick link on my website. I've also set up an Amazon wishlist for the show with resources I am looking at acquiring, allowing fans to support the show with resources that will go into research for future episodes. There are also other areas that do not require any monetary outlay, but still greatly help the series grow. They just require a few moments of your time. These include leaving reviews on iTunes and Spotify, or your favourite podcasting platform, while following the show on Facebook or Twitter, along with sharing, retweeting, and liking the episodes, greatly helps the exposure the series receives on social media. So, if Casting Through Ancient Greece has been a series you have been enjoying, and you would like to help the series grow, I would greatly appreciate any support that you may be able to extend to the show. It all really helps, and I am extremely grateful for all those who have done so and continue to do so. Just head to www.castingthroughancientgreece.com and click on the Support the Series button to discover the many ways you can help. The Near East is one area of light in a world of prehistoric darkness. Mark Van D. Maroop. Hello, I'm Mark Selleck and welcome back to Casting Through Ancient Greece, episode 45, The Greek Periphery, Anatolia. We have now arrived at our final destination, that of Anatolia, in our look at the wider Greek world in these episodes on the Greek periphery. First we went west to see the developments on the island of Sicily and southern parts of Italy. We were able to see Neolithic cultures develop on the island, though a clear picture was hard to come by. The island would enter into the Greek view during the Bronze Age, with trade contacts being made. Eventually, Sicily would become part of the wider Greek world, as Greek colonies began dotting much of the east of the island during the early Archaic period. With the growth of the Greek colonies would come conflict with other Greeks, the native Sicilians, and the Phoenicians. By the time of the Greek and Persian Wars, the Greeks of Sicily would face their own invasion. This would come from Carthage, seeing the First Sicilian War develop. This war, though, would end in a quick Greek victory at the Battle of Hamira, around the same time the Greeks and the Aegean had defeated Xerxes. Next, we travelled to the northern wild and untamed lands of Thrace, where the Thracians would be a result of earlier Neolithic cultures that had formed in the Balkans thousands of years earlier. The Thracian identity that would come to describe their shared culture would be a result of these indigenous Balkan cultures interacting with the numerous Indo-European migrations that would take place as the Bronze Age developed. Thrace would first appear to enter the Greek minds during the Bronze Age with references made to their lands in the epic poetry of Homer. Though it would be on the backdrop of the Persian invasions of Greece at the end of the Archaic period, we would hear that Thracian lands would become a crossroads for Persian campaigns. Initially, Persia would attempt to expand north into Scythian lands, where a path through Thracian lands would need to be secured. Though their hold in Thrace during this period would only stay intact as long as a sizable occupying force was present. The most successful period of Persian control would come during the lead-up and during the Greek and Persian Wars. A sizable Persian force would secure lands in Thrace and Macedonia, paving a way forward to Greece. Though with the ultimate Persian defeat in Greece, Thrace once again would become very inhospitable to the Persians within their lands. 
Next, we stayed north of central Greece, but shifted slightly to the west, where we then focused on the early developments of Macedon. These lands during the Neolithic period were also inhabited by many tribal groups. We saw hazy references preserved in myth and poem that would tie regions north of Mount Olympus to the origins of the Macedonians. But it wouldn't be until Herodotus where we would be given a firmer history of Macedon. Though this was in the context of the establishment of the Macedonian royal house. We would then be lacking in detail on the particulars behind the expansion of Macedon up to the period of the Greco-Persian Wars. This would see the seventh king of the Argid dynasty enter the pages of Herodotus' histories on the backdrop of the interactions between Greece and Persia. We would see leading up to and all throughout the wars, Alexander would need to perform a fine balancing act between the two powers who he was right in the middle of. There would be a number of examples where Alexander was looking to the Greeks' welfare, though a cynic would also point out these stories could have developed after the war, or true motives with Macedonian interests were really the prime factor. Though with the Persian defeat, Macedon would find itself in a powerful position in the north. They would take advantage of the retreat of the Persians and would expand their lands further at the expense of some of the Thracian tribes. In this episode, we will be now turning our attention to the region that would become part of the wider Greek world very early on after the recovery of the collapse of the Bronze Age. But even before this, the Mycenaeans of the Bronze Age would be very well connected with the lands east across the Aegean in Anatolia, with some early foundations in the central coastal regions which would end up becoming known as Ionia, named after the tribal group of Greeks called the Ionians that would come to colonise the area during the Dark and Archaic period. We will first begin by zooming out and looking at the larger area of Anatolia, before then focusing closer on Ionia and the surrounding regions. From here, we will then shift our focus to the coastal port city of Miletus that would be described as the ornament of Ionia by Herodotus. Once looking at the very early history of these areas and following them through to the breakout of the Greek and Persian Wars, we will then look at the Ionian experience throughout the Greco-Persian War period in a similar fashion to what we have done with our other Greek periphery regions. This has allowed us to view the wars from various points of view, though granted, most of our information is found in the Greek sources in the context of the Greeks of the mainland. So, let's now begin by looking at the region of Anatolia and what can be found to have been taking place in these lands from the earliest times. Anatolia is the most western landmass of the Asian continent, protruding into the Aegean Sea. The area is also referred to as Asia Minor and it's effectively a large peninsula extending westward. Today, the lands of ancient Anatolia are found within the borders of the modern nation of Turkey. The lands are bordered by water on all sides except for the east, where it is connected to the rest of the Asian continent. To the north is the Black Sea, then travelling west through the Hellespont would be the open waters of the Aegean, while then continuing along the western coast and rounding the southern coast would be the Mediterranean Sea. The name for the area Anatolia comes from the Greeks, like many names for places. Though we use the Latinized form today of the Greek Anatoli, these are what have been passed down through the western traditions surviving in our language today. The name translates to the yeast, this being in the context of the sun rising from the perspective of the Greeks. It's also interesting to note that many other regions in this area of the world would have their names derived in a similar way, such as the Levant and the Orient, with their origins being found in Latin, roughly meaning to rise, in the context of the sun rising in the east. The lands of Anatolia have been shaped over millions of years through tectonic processes and seismic activity, with the region experiencing many earthquakes and volcanic eruptions. The geological profile of the land is somewhat complex, with much of it dominated by rough, broken or mountainous regions. The central part of Anatolia features a large massif of upturned blocks and folded troughs that create a plateau of rough terrain. 
This sees over 80% of Anatolia being some 450 metres above sea level, with its average elevation being over 1,000 metres. Much of this land is wedged in by two mountain ranges that converge in the east and will be where the greatest agricultural potential of the lands would lie. Though the region of Ionia that we'll be focusing on as we continue would be in some of the rarer lowland areas throughout the coastal regions. The lands of Anatolia would see many kingdoms and empires over time, such as the Hittites, Assyrians, Lydians and Persians. The region would become increasingly strategically important with connections to the west parts of the Mediterranean as time went on, though the great empires and the Greek connections to Anatolia would be fairly recent when viewed in the scope of human history. The lands of Anatolia would have deeper roots in history, with much of it still shrouded in mystery. Like many of the regions that we have looked at, human history would stretch back through the Neolithic and deep into the Paleolithic period. Probably one of the earliest pieces of evidence that points to human habitation in Anatolian lands dates to around 1.2 million years ago. The evidence is that of a fragment from a stone tool. The fragment was found in the ancient deposits of the Gadez River, which now flows from Mount Murat and some 400 kilometres into the Aegean Sea. Archaeologists believe this is one of the oldest securely dated finds pointing to human activity in the region, due to the geological context it was found in. Other sites throughout Anatolian lands also point to early human habitation throughout the Paleolithic period. As one might imagine, these are often found in cave sites where the different levels of occupation are far better protected throughout the preceding tens of thousands of years. These caves have shown evidence of human occupation at various locations for some 250,000 years, up to the Neolithic period. Some of the larger sites are of the Urambagas Cave, around 20 kilometres west of Istanbul, Karain Cave in southwest Anatolia, and Belbazi Cave not far away. For much of this period, the evidence of the earliest human occupation comes through us through the discovery of animal bones, other food remains, and tools found at some of the sites. We get no real picture of a distinct culture at this point, but just scattered evidence of human activity over a vast period of time. Much of the earlier periods of the Paleolithic would have seen Neanderthals throughout the Anatolian region, before then seeing Homo sapiens begin migrating into the lands around 50,000 years ago, where they would end up becoming the dominant species and then the only one inhabiting the peninsula, with the extinction of the Neanderthals. With the entry of anatomically modern humans entering into Anatolia, there would be a period that saw interactions take place with the established Neanderthals. No doubt this would have seen conflict as well as perhaps cooperation to some degree, or tolerance at least for a period. Recent findings have shown a number of examples throughout different parts of the Middle East and Eurasia where Homo sapiens and Neanderthals had interbred. Though Homo sapiens would become the only species to inhabit Anatolia, and the rest of the world for that matter, one major theory that has explained why Homo sapiens replaced Neanderthals was through their ability to arrange themselves on far larger social structures and therefore to cooperate in larger numbers. This idea has been put forward quite eloquently in the book Sapiens by Yuval Noah Harari. With these larger social structures that would develop through the thousands of years after their entry into Anatolia, we would now begin to see sites showing far more complex signs of occupation. This would be revealed to us in the most obvious forms of buildings and monuments. For the most parts, many of these Neolithic sites would only be revealed to us in the last few decades, with much mystery still surrounding them. For this episode though, I want to briefly focus on two of the most well-known of these sites. These would be Katalhoyuk in southern Anatolia and Gobekli Tepe, deeper in the region, not far from the modern-day border with Syria. Katalhoyuk is a very important site in Anatolia, pointing to suggestions that the region was a centre of advanced civilization during the Neolithic period. 
it was first excavated in 1958, with seasons also taking place in the early to mid-60s. A scandal over missing artefacts would see the original excavation teams banned from Turkey, with the site laying idle until 1993. The site dates back as far as 7500 BC, with there being 18 successive layers of buildings being identified in the archaeological record, the succeeding levels being built on a foundation of rubble from the previous level. This seeing the ruins now appear on top of a mound. The last of these layers appears to have been abandoned around 5700 BC. One curious feature of the site is that it appears that all the buildings were of a domestic nature, with no public buildings being identified. Though this classification of domestic and public buildings may be comparing to other sites much later in the historical record, perhaps where societies were functionally different and where buildings with central functions had now become the norm. At Catahoyuk, it seems all the structures were in a standardised fashion, though it could be possible that different buildings could have been used for different purposes. Another interesting feature of the structures is that they were clumped together with no footpaths or streets between the different dwellings. Access to the different buildings was through holes in the roofs and sides of the buildings, with ladders leading to them. The structures themselves were of a mud-brick construction, while then having plaster coating on the interior walls. It appears that the rooftops may have acted as streets for access to other buildings, as well as outdoor activities. It's estimated that the site would have supported an average population of 5,000 to 7,000 over the years, with perhaps a population of 10,000 at its height. Other interesting finds within the ruins were murals and figurines found throughout the settlement. It has been suggested these were somewhat connected to religious practices, followed by the people who inhabited the settlement. The murals proposed to contain religious symbols, while the figures are thought to represent some sort of mother goddess. Also closely connected to religion is that of the burial of the dead, with some examples found beneath the floors of the dwellings. This is in line with some of the other earlier civilizations that we have covered before, but that wouldn't come into existence until some 4,000 years later. Perhaps some continuity with care for the dead was preserved for some thousands of years throughout the region and beyond. If the site at Catahoyuk gives us somewhat of a picture of a Neolithic domestic settlement, then our next site we are going to focus on will point to something very different. Our next site would push back the dating of our understanding of advanced societies even further. Gobekli Tepe is located just north of the modern-day border with Syria, deep within Anatolia. The name Gobekli Tepe means Potbelly Hill, reflecting the appearance of the land the site is on, a gently rounded top that rises some 15 metres above the surrounding land. The site was first excavated in 1994 by Professor Klaus Schmidt, working with the German Archaeological Institute and the University of Heidelberg. This wasn't the first time that the site had attracted attention, with studies done in the area in the 60s identifying a number of knolls and rises, as well as a number of Stone Age tools strewn over the area, though it would be Schmidt who would uncover what lay beneath. To this day, only 5% of the site has been uncovered, but what has is like nothing found before in a Neolithic site. Unlike the domestic structures found at Catahoyuk, the structures of Gobekli Tepe were a series of megaliths that appear to have religious purposes of some kind. A number of circular structures supported by large stone T-shaped pillars would be uncovered by Schmidt's excavations. A large number of these pillars were decorated with reliefs depicting elements of the natural world and other abstract symbology. This has led to the proposal that the site has some sort of religious purpose, with Schmidt describing it as the world's first temple. An interesting detail around some of the reliefs is that they were carved in high relief, originally thought to be an advanced method appearing in later time periods. High relief is where sculptured figures and symbols project from the background by half or more than half their full natural depth, 
This gives the image a 3D appearance, and it's much more difficult to carve than simply carving lines and images into the pillars themselves. What really made this site stand out was how far back into the Neolithic it could be dated. The earliest confirmed date assigned through radiocarbon dating goes all the way back to around 9600 BC in some parts of the site, this being right at the end of the last ice age. What is also interesting to note here is that it appears that much of the site had been backfilled on purpose, which is the point that the date aligns with, so one wonders how far back in the past the site was actually first established. What has been uncovered has been seen as some sort of important religious site, though other rectangular structures have also been uncovered, with their functions in context of the site unknown. The site and the societies around it still remain a mystery, with debate around how societies looked around the region during this period. Proposals have been put forward that this period would be seeing a transition of hunter-gatherer societies into agricultural ones. It has been thought that multiple hunter-gatherer bands had come together to construct the site at Gobekli Tepe, though they most likely had semi-permanent settlements dotted around the site. Though as I have pointed out, only 5% of the site has been excavated, and in just this part, much interpretation is needed to attempt to understand what has been uncovered. Perhaps when more of the site has been investigated, a clearer understanding of its functions and the society around it would become more apparent. Until then, we are left with a whole host of questions that we are left to hypothesise over. Perhaps at the top of this list is how a population large enough to construct, augment, and maintain such a substantial complex was mobilised and compensated, or fed in the conditions of pre-sedentary society. Sites such as Katahoyak and Gobekli Tepe have shifted our understanding of societies during the Neolithic period. Previously, during this time, it was thought the societies were made up of smaller hunter-gatherer groups with very little sophisticated technologies and simple settlements. Though, the discovery of these sites and others has called into question this thinking. These sites could change our understanding of a crucial stage in the development of human society. With the hunter-gatherer way of life departed from earlier by some regions and the appearance of civilised societies taking place much earlier in human history than first thought. If you have a business, you need a website. What's the best way to get a website up and running? Choose a web hosting company that makes it simple, like Pair Networks. Pair has over 20 years of experience managing entire digital ecosystems for thousands of online businesses all around the world. Pair makes it easy for you, with do-it-yourself website building tools and features, including simple drag-and-drop page designs, and they have guaranteed US-based support technicians ready to help you whenever you need it, 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. Right now, when you sign up with Pair Networks, you'll receive one free month of web hosting. See for yourself how easy it is to build your website for free. Visit pair.com free to get your first month of web hosting for free by using the code QUICKSTART. That's pair.com free. Promo code Quick start to get started today. The Neolithic period still remains a mysterious time when it comes to human society. But as the millennia would pass, we would enter into the Bronze Age, where large organised civilizations would develop. Though, as we will see, even though we get evidence of these civilizations, much around them would still remain hidden from us through their rise and fall over time. This period of the Bronze Age would see us now able to identify the earliest historically attested populations to develop in the region. The earliest of these is that of the Hadians, who occupied a region in central Anatolia, while the Hurrians were located further east in Anatolia, Syria and northern Mesopotamia. 
Both of these early populations seem to have been a result of the developments that had been taking place through the Neolithic, with the various hunter-gatherer societies slowly converting to a more sedentary way of life, as agriculture became more widespread. This had led to the Hattians and Hurrians emerging as identified cultures in the 3rd millennium BC. Both of these people are seen as indigenous populations of Anatolia, but the truth is it is hard for us to know their true origins before they are detected in the archaeological record. As Mark Van de Marup puts in his work, A History of the Ancient Near East, when people suddenly enter its spotlight, it is often impossible to establish whether they came from far away or nearby, or if they had always been in the region where they first appear in the documentation. Both the languages that these people spoke are now long extinct, which has made it hard to track their origins. Much debate still revolves around their language groups, but it is thought they were neither Semitic nor Indo-European. What would also be detected in these lands was the emergence of a large and organised trade network, as other civilizations were emerging in neighbouring regions, such as the Arcadian Empire over in Mesopotamia. This trade link would only grow as the third millennium turned into the second, along with the growth of other cultural centres. As Anatolia was moving into the second millennium, the first half would see great disruptions to both the Hurrians and Hadians. This would be due to migrations coming into Anatolia from the north, from regions around the Black Sea. These groups that would enter into the region we have spoken about a number of times before. This would be the groups identified as Indo-Europeans, whose languages and ideas would influence many regions of the early Bronze Age Near East and Europe. Their interactions with the many indigenous cultures would see the development of many of the large Bronze Age and Iron Age cultures. But as I have stressed many times before, the Indo-Europeans were not a single group of people. They were a language group and a set of root ideas originating thousands of years earlier in regions north of the Black Sea. This Indo-European migration into Anatolia in the early 2nd millennium would result in a new civilization emerging, known as the Hittites, which the Hattians and the Hurrians would be absorbed into. Much mystery still surrounds the Hittites to this day, with what we do know about them coming from a large number of tablets that were uncovered at their capital in Hattusa. Though it has been difficult to piece together a chronology from the texts, and their reliability of events can be called into question. The texts all date to the last two centuries of the Hittite culture, but many of the copies are of older texts, so how much of the current political situation when copied has influenced these texts is unknown. The Hittites would come into being in what is known as the Old Empire, around 1650 BC, when one of these early cultures, the Hattians, were absorbed by the invading Indo-European people. These invaders would relocate the capital within their lands and would continue conquering the smaller principalities in the region, incorporating them into the new empire. There would be setbacks during the campaigning, taking place during this Old Kingdom period, but the Hittites would come to control central Anatolia, parts of Syria, and even crossed over the Euphrates to include northern parts of Mesopotamia, sacking Babylon in the process. Though campaigning this far had begun to stretch the empire's resources thin, and the internal workings of the empire became weak. By around 1500 BC, enemies within and without would now erode away at the structures seeing the Hittites fall into a weakened state, which has been described as a sort of dark age, with records relating to the Hittites also becoming very hazy and sparse. For approximately the next hundred years, the Hittites would remain in this weakened state, which is referred to as the Middle Kingdom. As the 14th century BC began, so too would the rise in power of the Hittites once again. This time they would emerge stronger than before, and the power of their empire would be fully realised, though with some little hiccups along the way. Towards the end of the rise of the Hittite power, 
is when we also associate the Trojan War taking place. It has been thought that the Hittites had been conducting operations against Troy, or had allies attacking it, which may have involved the Mycenaeans. Eventually, the Hittites would disappear from history as the collapse of the Bronze Age took hold, which we looked at in the series episode Collapse of the Bronze Age. The region would once again fragment into smaller separate principalities before power centres would once again emerge coming out of the Dark Ages. We just brought up the Trojan War, and any look at Anatolia wouldn't be complete without discussing this legendary war, while we will also touch on one other tale with connections to the Anatolian region. As we had spoken about before, the ancient city of Troy was located in northwest Anatolia on the Hellespont. The Trojan War comes to us through the epic poet Homer in his epic The Iliad, along with fragments of what is known as the epic cycle also surviving through other writers. Although Homer was writing as the Dark Ages were coming into the Archaic Age, around 800 BC, he was describing deeds of heroes and great men in the context of this great Bronze Age struggle. The legend would see the war have its origins in the abduction of Helen, the wife of Menelaus, the king of Sparta, by the Trojan prince Paris. The Trojans would refuse the demands of the Greeks to have Helen returned, and Agamemnon, the brother of Menelaus and king of Mycenae, would be convinced to lead an army against Troy. He was able to assemble many other Mycenaean kingdoms to join the campaign. The Greeks would land outside Troy, with it quickly becoming clear taking this well-defended city was going to take more than a quick campaign. The Greeks would settle in for a siege for the next nine years, where battles would occur and raids of the surrounding regions. It would be in the tenth year that would see Troy fall, but not in a direct assault, but a trick, famously known as the Trojan Horse. The Greeks would appear to have given up the siege and sail home, but instead concealed the army and built a large wooden horse. This horse was given up as an offering with the Trojans bringing it into the city walls. The Greeks had a small force held up inside the belly of the horse. Once the Trojans had finished celebrating the end of the war into the early hours of the morning, and most, a sleeper in a drunken stupor, the Greeks descended from the horse and opened the gates of Troy to their waiting army. So the walls of Troy were finally breached after 10 years through deception. The population was massacred and the city razed. The Trojan War was supposed to have taken place sometime towards the end of the Bronze Age, though the historicity of the war has been a long-standing question, with many believing the tale being just that, a story, but nothing more. This thinking would start to change with the excavations at Hisalik by Heinrich Schliemann towards the end of the 19th century. A number of Troys would be discovered at the different levels, showing the city had been destroyed and rebuilt over the many centuries. As further excavations took place over time, focus would be placed on Troy level 7, which would be dated to around 1180 BC. This Troy showed signs of destruction through war, with burnt ruins along with weapons and arrowheads found within the destruction layer. As the discoveries at Troy continued, the possibility of a historical Trojan War became more credible. To complement these discoveries at Troy, excavations around the Hittite capital at Hutusa would uncover a great deal of tablets, which over the decades would be slowly translated. A number of these would show the Mycenaeans becoming involved in Hittite interests along the coast, as well as what seems like the city of Troy. We do not get any clear-cut account that marries up with the tales we find from the Greeks about the Trojan War, but we can possibly see where the legend of the Trojan War may have developed, and we can perhaps even begin to ask, which Trojan War was this tale referring to, or was it a collective memory of the interactions throughout the period? Another story we find in Greek mythology that can be linked to Anatolia 
would be that of the legendary king Tantalus. Tantalus was the king of Spilas, located west in what would become the lands of the Lydian Empire, which we will talk about more in our next episode when we focus on Ionia. Tantalus was part of the first generation of mortals who interacted with the gods and would suffer one of the rare punishments dished out by Zeus once entering the afterlife. Tantalus would suffer this fate due to him threatening the balance of order between gods and mortals. There are three stories of his crimes, but we will stick with the most popular of the three, though they all would go against this balance of order between gods and mortals. Up on Mount Olympus and dining with the gods, Tantalus decided to test the gods and see if they really did know everything. He did this through seeing if they could tell if they were eating forbidden food. To do this, he would do something particularly gruesome, by dicing up and cooking his own son, Pelops, to be served to the gods. The gods would detect this terrible crime, though Demeter, distracted and longing for her daughter, Persephone, who had been abducted by Hades and taken to the underworld, ate Pelops' shoulder. When the gods put Pelops back together and resurrected him, they had to construct his shoulder out of ivory. Anyway, for his crime, Tantalus's kingdom and his dynasty would be cursed, though he would suffer his own personal punishment when going down into Hades. Perhaps Homer's description of what Odysseus saw when encountering Tantalus during his visit in the underworld in the Odyssey best describes the punishment that Zeus inflicted on him. I also saw the awful agonies that Tantalus had to bear. The old man was standing in a pool of water, which nearly reached his chin, and his thirst drove him to unceasing efforts. But he could never reach the water to drink it, for whenever he stooped in his eagerness to drink, it disappeared. The pool was swallowed up, and all there was at his feet was the dark earth, which some mysterious power had drained dry. Trees spread their foliage high over the pool and dangled fruit above his head. Pear trees and pomegranates, apple trees with their glossy burden, sweet figs and luxuriant olives. But whenever the old man made to grasp them in his hands, the wind would toss them up towards the shadowy clouds. The story of Tantalus would be where we get our modern word tantalize and its meaning. To torment or tease someone with the sight or promise of something that is unobtainable. As I alluded to when finishing up with the Hittites, their civilization would fall with the collapse of the Bronze Age. Hattusa, the capital of the empire, is thought to have been raised in 1180 BC by a violent assault by its enemies. Though by this stage the empire was already in a weakened state, the Assyrian Empire to the southeast had grown in power by the mid-13th century BC, advancing all the way to the Euphrates in Anatolia. The Hittites had poured military resources into the lands that had formed sort of a buffer zone, such as Mitanni, to try and stop the Assyrian advance, but to no avail. Civil war in the empire was also a factor that had to be dealt with in this period, which would have not helped in defending against outside threats. Once the internal threats were resolved, the Hittites went back to focusing on the Assyrian problem. They would form an alliance with Egypt, which would see them able to focus more on their resources in trying to slow the Assyrian expansion. This treaty, known as the Treaty of Kadesh, would be one of the most complete treaties surviving from the Bronze Age. Eventually, though, Assyria would end up penetrating into the Hittite heartland and annexing much of Hittite lands in Asia Minor. Even though the Hittites had taken measures to focus their attention east, there were other events that had been taking place that would see them vulnerable from multiple directions. The mysterious group known as the Sea Peoples would also be a factor that the Hittite Empire would have to deal with. We looked at the Sea Peoples in our episodes on the Bronze Age Collapse, though just for a quick refresher, 
they are thought to have been a group of displaced peoples from a number of regions in the Mediterranean that were also dealing with the effects of events that would lead to the Bronze Age collapse. For the most part, we mainly hear of the sea peoples through the Egyptian texts, though we do get indications that other regions were also seeing attacks by what could be identified as these sea peoples. They would attack a number of coastal regions, perhaps with the intention of settling in these new lands, far away from where they were fleeing. It's also worthwhile to note that the Sea Peoples would appear to arrive in Egypt and Asia Minor in waves over a generation or two. When it comes to the Sea Peoples in Hittite-controlled territory, one of our best pieces of potential evidence comes from the texts that had originated in the coastal kingdom of Ugrit in northern Syria. The kingdom and the city was a busy centre of trade, with many connections to various large and small cities found within the vast amounts of clay tablets that had been uncovered at the site. Ugarit, by the later stages of the Bronze Age, was thought to be within Hittite-controlled lands, or at least right on the southern border of theirs. Though it is also important to note that influence from Cyprus also extended into Ugarit, with it difficult to tell if, when, and to what extent Hittite control extended into the kingdom. Though it would appear that in the correspondence we're about to focus on, Cyprus held some sort of influence in Ugarit, whether this was territorial control or some sort of arrangement through marriage between the two royal courts. A great many of the uncovered clay tablets had pointed to a prosperous region, though by around 1200 BC, the text starts showing troubles were at hand. A number of letters and clay tablets have been published from different cities within the kingdom that point to invaders threatening their lands. A series of letters has the king of Ugarit and the king of Cyprus, or more specifically the king of Alicia, which Cyprus was a part of, in correspondence over seaboard invaders. The first begins with the King of Cyprus responding to an earlier letter from the King of Ugarit titled, They have seen enemy ships on the sea. Well, if they really have seen ships, then you should arm yourself as best you can. Now your own troops and ships, where are they? Are they not with you? Some enemy or other will be attacking you from the west. Surround your cities with walls, bring troops and chariots within them. Wait on the enemy. In this way, you will be as strong as possible. The next text is a letter in response from the king of Ugarit, where the earlier fears have been realised. My father, enemy ships have now come. The enemy have burnt my cities with fire and done terrible things in the land. Doesn't my father know that all of my masters, my father's troops, are in the land of Hatti, and that all my ships are in the land of Lisha? They have not yet come back. Thus, the land here lies bare. May my father know this thing. Just now, it has been seven enemy ships which have come. They have done terrible things to us. From now on, when enemy ships appear, would you tell me about it, so that I will be informed? Ultimately, Ugarit and the cities nearby would be destroyed somewhere around 1190 BC, which would fit into the picture seen by many coastal regions all along the Aegean and down through the Levant. This would have seen westward trade severely hampered into Hittite lands further adding another factor into their weakening. So, as we have seen when looking at the Bronze Age collapse in general before, it wouldn't be a single event that would see the disappearance of the Hittite kingdom. Although the circumstances still remain mysterious today, a perfect storm of events seems to have led to their downfall. War with another powerful empire, internal strife within, marauders disrupting trade networks, and even suggestions of climate change leading to drought and food shortages, all seem to be a part of the equation. Though, it wouldn't appear to be the Sea Peoples that would see the destruction of the Hittite capital, as long thought. More recent research has suggested this would be from a closer neighbour 
to the northeast, now that the empire was much more vulnerable. These neighbours were also seen as yet another injection of Indo-Europeans into the Anatolian region, who would come to form their own smaller kingdoms in the wake of the Hittite collapse. Hattusa's destruction and the Hittites vanishing from history seems to have taken place around 1180 BC, though there is still much research ongoing when it comes to all things Hittite, with us really only understanding a fraction of their history. With the fall of the Hittites, a power vacuum was left. This would see the most influential power in the region beginning to take control of some previously held Hittite lands. The Assyrians would absorb some former Hittite territories, especially the eastern parts of the empire, though even they would see their influence shrink as the Bronze Age collapse progressed. Much of the region of Anatolia for during this period would fragment into smaller kingdoms and principalities, especially the closer to the Aegean one travelled. The next time we would see a powerful empire spread its influence into Anatolia would be the rise of the Neo-Assyrians, during the recovery of the collapse and into the Iron Age. Next episode, we will briefly look at their rise and control of the region before we begin focusing more on the western part of Anatolia and the region that would become Ionia. Here we'll also see the rise of the Lydian Kingdom, which would emerge after the collapse of the Hittites. We will also see the Greeks, in the wake of their recovery from the Dark Ages, begin populating the coastline, seeing the region to become known as Ionia. Here we will also see the foundation of one of the most important Greek cities in Ionia, Miletus. Then we will see the downfall of the Neo-Assyrian Empire, through the Medes and the rise of the Persians, in what is now Iran and seeing their spread all through Anatolia up to the Aegean, which will then bring us up to a point before the breakout of the Greco-Persian Wars. Instead of rehashing the events during the Greco-Persian Wars, I'll be trying to look at the events from the perspective of the Greeks and Persians in Ionia and the Persian Empire at large, treating events on the Greek mainland as somewhat of a sideshow. Thank you everyone for your continued support and a big shout out to all those who have found some value in the series and have been supporting it on Patreon and other various ways. Your contribution is truly helping me grow the series. I would also like to give a personal shout out to Rex Tion for choosing to sign up and support the series on Patreon. I greatly appreciate your decision to do so. If you have also found some value in the show and wish to support the series, you can head to www.castingthroughancientgreece.com and click on the support the series button where you can discover many ways to extend your support to helping the series grow. Be sure to stay connected and updated on what's happening in the series and join me over on Facebook or Instagram at Casting Through Ancient Greece or on Twitter at Casting Greece. And be sure to subscribe to the series over at the Casting Through Ancient Greece website. I hope you can join me next time for episode 46, Anatolia, Emergence of Ionia. <laughs>